You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. I am beyond thrilled and excited to have my next guest on the show. Her name is Kara Harbstreet. She is a non-diet dietitian, and I am just thrilled to have you on the show, Kara. Kara, welcome. Hello, and yes, thanks so much for having me. I am so excited to sit down and chat with you tonight. Yay! Yes, it has been a long time coming. I've been, for those of you listening, I've been following Kara for a while on Instagram. We actually met through Medium over a year ago, and it was kind of fun to find another writer out there who was talking about some of the topics I like to write about myself. So Kara, it's been, it's been a lot. I've had you on my mind to be a guest for a while. So it's so nice to have you here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And, and like you said, there's some really natural overlap between the work that we do, even though we do kind of exist in, in different spheres. So yeah, I'm excited to, to get into some good conversation. Cool, cool. Yeah. So to begin, could you tell those listening a little bit about your background, what you do, and eventually how you became the professional you are today? Sure. Yeah. So like you said, I am a a dietitian. I'm based in Kansas City, so pretty much born and raised in the Midwest. And my education to become a registered dietitian was very traditional. And I say traditional in the sense that it was in that very weight normative, weight centric type of space where, you know, I was basically, you know, educated and trained to look at weight loss as the ultimate solution. So, you know, that really shaped my, my beliefs and my thoughts around health and well-being in the beginning. And I graduated from my program as this newly minted dietitian ready to like go out there and tackle the world and like, fight the battle against quote unquote obesity. And, you know, I started in, in pretty traditional dietetics roles. So you can typically find dietitians in clinical settings, either inpatient or outpatient in hospitals, things like food service on campuses or in healthcare facilities, and then out in the community. And I never really envisioned that I would work in anything other than one of those spaces. So I started doing some corporate wellness work. I worked for a grocery retailer for a while doing some wellness programming and eventually ended up at an outpatient clinic for the pediatric hospital here in Kansas City in the endocrinology department. And around that time was when I really started to back away from the type of nutrition counseling that I had been doing up until that point, which like I described, was very much rooted around weight loss. And I was learning a lot from other dietitians and kind of taking on my own self-learning journey for intuitive eating. And it's 
it's so funny that this is where I ended up because I actually had my original copy of the intuitive eating book from, you know, the nineties when it first came out. And I had somehow picked up this copy at some point, you know, either in my undergrad or between, you know, starting my first job. And it's like, I brushed it off at first. I didn't even read it. I maybe thumbed through it, glanced at it, and it sort of lingered on the shelf. But through connecting with other dietitians and just starting to challenge my own beliefs, I really came around to the idea. And, and one of the main reasons was because I was seeing the frustration with the clients that I was working with. You know, I started just questioning a little bit more, realizing that, you know, the status quo of what I had been taught and what I had learned up until then just really wasn't you know, doing any favors. So I had also around the same time started up a bit of a, a side hustle, if you will. So my progression to becoming self-employed and, and forming my brand and my own small business was, you know, I started out with social media as sort of this creative outlet. From that, it progressed into food blogging and having that online outlet to share, you know, delicious recipes and, you know, opinions and other things that I was thinking about because I had always loved writing. And, and like you mentioned, that came through with my work on Medium. Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually realizing like, oh, this could become a fully fledged thing. I just need to give it the time and that it needs to grow into something, you know, that can, can support me in my lifestyle. So that's sort of the, the quick and dirty version of how I got to be where I am now, which is, essentially working in media and communications under a private practice. So Street Smart Nutrition is my brand, you know, private practice as far as nutrition counseling was a piece of it for a while. But my biggest mission now is to connect with larger audiences to share that non-diet message. That is amazing. And I love to hear that journey. I think it is Something I hope more dietitians can kind of see the light to is it doesn't always have to be about weight loss, you know, and your skills in nutrition can be applied toward an intuitive eating and non-diet approach, which I'm sure everyone listening is very excited to hear more about. What I'm also curious, though, is did your journey from traditional training towards that approach reflect your personal journey at all? Like, did you have any struggles with dieting yourself or disordered eating in the past? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm not unique by any means in, in how I came to be interested in nutrition to begin with. What really brought me to it, you know, alongside some of my own personal dealings with, you know, body image issues and challenges around that was also sports nutrition. So mm -hmm. I was always an athlete. I played volleyball and ran track in high school and then was fortunate enough to compete at the next level as a high jumper in college. And it was not really until I got to that level that I had any sort of awareness about my body. I didn't have you know, the body checking behaviors or this feeling of being scrutinized or this pressure to look a certain way until, you know, being on this bigger stage and realizing, you know, there's a lot of other athletes here. Those comparisons started creeping in, you know, little offhand comments from coaching staff and really just my, my own self-criticism. I think it really came to, to a head at that point. And then simultaneously, I'd gotten interested in food and nutrition from that sports nutrition perspective. But I had also taken a class about world food and agriculture, which introduced me to a lot of different food cultures and how, 
you know, food systems worked around the world. And I was so interested in it and realized like, oh, hey, like this is a career. Like people take their interest in food and it actually becomes something. Up until then, I had no idea that registered dietitians even existed. So it was around wow. that time. <laughs> My advisor was like, okay, you got to pick a major. You're never going to graduate. Um, and so it was, it was really interesting too, because the, the curriculum, once I declared that major was what introduced some of the disordered behaviors that I started to really latch onto. So like I said, up until that point, I had never really had a challenge around food, but it was through certain assignments or projects that I basically learned dieting behaviors that I took a little too far. So mm -hmm. like my fitness pal is a prime example. I had never even had that app downloaded to my phone. I didn't even know what it was until one of our projects required us to do a diet history and basically assess it and, and critique it. So, you know, that's just one example too of how, you know, like you said, in the future, I think we really have to take a hard look at not only how dietitians are practicing, but also how we're trained because that's the catalyst for a lot of really harmful things that come out of it. You know, I've heard stories similar to this before, but usually it starts with the dietitian having some sort of body image issue or difficulty with food and then that peaking an interest into the dietitian world. But you, it sounds like you just loved food and you wanted to celebrate food and learn more about the culture behind food and the, probably all the other wonderful things. And then the dietitian school actually caused the troubles, which didn't sound overwhelming, but it, it sounds like you did pick up a few behaviors based on that experience in class and those assignments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you pretty much nailed it. And, you know, I, I disclose openly and often that I live in a, a straight size body. I hold a lot of unearned thin privilege just through genetics and everything else that contributes to body size. And so, yeah, I mean, at, at this point, you know, my, my body size or my relationship with food, no matter what it's been, you know, has not really been affected or impacted by that. But yeah, I mean, the, the outcomes of what I've experienced, I think are, are certainly not something to center in a conversation around that, because at the end of the day, you know, my, my relationship with food is not at all unique or, you know, the journey that I've, I've been on and, mm -hmm. you know, that thin privilege is a, a really big piece of that. Yeah. And I acknowledge the same thing. I've always been in a straight sized body as well. It, it has privilege behind it, which Oh man, you know, it's, it can be challenging to, to feel like your struggles are valid when you do live in a straight size body, but it, it can be also difficult and you can have an eating disorder in any size body and struggle with food in any size body that you can, you live in. Yeah. And I think noticing that, you know, what you just said that disordered eating and eating disorders don't discriminate based on body size, you know, those behaviors were showing up in the clients I was working with. And again, in all body sizes and all types of backgrounds and experiences. And that was one of the main things that really forced me to look at straight in the eye and recognize that I was using a very cookie cutter type approach based on my limited experience up to that point and this traditional education that I, I came out of. And I started to realize like, I'm really not helping. I got into this profession because of what you just said. I'm, I'm really passionate about food. I think it is 
endlessly exciting and interesting. And I wanted to help other people discover that too. But my training was really limiting in the fact that, you know, I didn't have the tools or the words to articulate that in a way that was not inducing really disordered thoughts and behaviors in the people that I was working with. So it's like a super cringy moment to look back and, and think about it. And, you know, even that like cringe inducing feeling, I think is like cliched at this point because so many of us have probably felt it, but that's really what it is. Like looking back and recognizing that I wasn't helping, you know, I was really part of the problem at that point. Mm, wow. So do you, can you recall any aha moments that you had in particular, maybe in a, in a session or just throughout your growth process that kind of brought you to a realization of that you weren't really helping people? So I don't know if there was one specific like light bulb moment that came off. I think it was more of this gradual evolution. And I credit that perspective in coming from, you know, that break that I described. So when I got into that inpatient position, I was working with kids with type one diabetes and Mm -hmm. That was a unique setting compared to everywhere I'd worked up till that point because it was so, so specific. I mean, we had families who were coming in hours after being diagnosed. You know, these kids had not yet started on insulin and they were critically ill. I mean, we're talking in the ICU and then, you know, that process of of learning how to manage, how to dose insulin, how to, you know, count carbs, all the rest. It was so specific that it gave me a break in my professional work that I could kind of run on autopilot there. And then, you know, I'd I'd separate myself from that to be able to say, okay, if I take a step back and look at the bigger picture, where am I falling short? Like what gaps need to be filled in, in these other areas? It was about a year long process that I remember actively digging into it and just gobbling up, you know, webinars and in-person sessions when I had the opportunity to be at a conference. And, you know, I was part of a a mastermind group with some other dietitians where we held each other really accountable for this. And it was during that time that I feel like I really started to connect the dots and recognize like, okay, I've, I've assessed where I'm at, like had a chance to reflect on it and make a path forward and kind of understand, okay, how do I move forward now that I know that I don't want to be part of a problem? That's really amazing and so important that you recognize that even though you had those years of training behind you, that you could really empower yourself to be part of a positive change instead of enforcing kind of those traditional values. Mm-hmm. And I think like you said, you know, you, you described hearing similar stories from other people that you've talked with in this space and the same thing was happening to me, you know, getting, getting to be, um, closer friends with other dietitians and reflecting back on our different programs. It was like one of those things where you spin around and you're like, wait, you too? Like, (laughs) and, and that was really validating, but also made it even more obvious that, okay, this is something that, that needs to be addressed. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if at this point, you know, curriculums have changed that much. I've, I've been a dietitian for about six years at this point. From what I'm hearing, you know, I, I mentor some students and interns and from what I'm hearing, you know, the tides are changing, but it's, 
it's almost like trying to turn the Titanic. Like it's just really slow going to fight against these systems that have been in place and, and been accepted and normalized for such a long time. Mm-hmm. I can see that being a very slow, arduous process to change all the schooling and the mindset behind the dietitian field. But, you know, I am really curious. So once you finally saw that, that light, And you're like, you know, maybe I want to look into intuitive eating and becoming a non-diet dietitian. Could you explain to everyone listening what exactly a non-diet dietitian is? Good question. It's tough (laughs) to answer, I'll be honest. (laughs) You know, it's like some of those other words that have no clear definition. It's like, you know, what does the word natural mean to you? And you get 50 (laughs) answers from 50 people. But for me, and I can really only speak for myself here, I use the term non-diet dietitian because it's hopefully implying that I am against this diet culture, this collective culture that we live in, and not against individual people. So there was a time when I used anti-diet, you know, intuitive eating dietitian, which is a phrase that most people outside of this this world don't recognize. And one of the biggest, I guess, not necessarily a point of contention, but one of the biggest debates seemed to come around that distinction between anti-diet or Mm non-diet and anti-dieter. Because, you know, when you are so engrossed in your food rules and you're, you're so wrapped up in this, you know, disordered type of behavior, you really internalize it. It almost becomes part of your identity. And even though when I used the term, I was talking about the the culture and the system, a lot of people took that to mean that, oh, well, you're against anyone who desires weight loss or yeah. you're against mm-hmm. anyone who is attracted to a diet or feels tempted to diet. And I really wanted to steer clear of that because ultimately that turns people away and closes them off to a message that I truly believe can be so, so beneficial for anyone who eats food. And what I was finding was that it really created a lot of defensiveness. And as a result, I in turn became really defensive. Like I just wanted to sink my heels in and like fight for this even harder. And it just, it created tension that wasn't helpful or necessary. So for me, a non-diet dietitian is one who, you know, employs a bunch of different frameworks that could be the principles of intuitive eating. It might be the health at every size framework, which um, is actually trademarked and and credited to fat activists and has existed for, for many, many years at this point. You know, there's a lot of different frameworks and approaches that you can still use that pull from traditional dietetics, like medical nutrition therapy, but it all kind of coalesces and centers around the individual person. So we can and should continuously modify it based on individual needs. And I think that's where it gets so confusing for a lot of people is because it's hard to describe this level of nuance when you only have like a one-liner on Twitter or this <laughs> sound bite in the media, you know? I completely agree. So when you work with people and they say they want to lose weight, how do you answer that question? Yeah, it's kind of the elephant in the room. I think <laughs> one misconception is that, you know, if we're a non-diet dietitian, that we never address weight loss or it never comes up in conversation, that we just avoid it. I would say that actually couldn't be further from the truth. I'm, I know from familiarizing myself with how some other dietitians practice and from my own experiences that 
it's actually better to just get it out in the open. And I've had a lot of clients who approached me, you know, maybe they found my information online or they were referred by someone else. They have no idea what my nutrition philosophy is. They just said, Hey, you know, you look like someone I might want to work with. And they come in with the interest in weight loss. So what I, I typically do, and I'll, I'll say too, at this point, I'm not doing nearly as much nutrition counseling as I was in the past, but it's sort of like saying, you know, let's sit down and let's just have a conversation. Like, tell me what it is that you're really desiring and kind of just excavating what the motivations are. So, you know, we acknowledge that weight loss is a desirable thing that it provides, you know, something that humans need, whether it's acceptance or community or validation, you know, the, the pressure of weight stigma and fat phobia in our society cannot be overstated. It is a serious, serious problem that impacts people on all levels. And the desire to escape from under that pressure is very real. I don't share the lived experience of, of having been on the receiving end of that, but by openly acknowledging that and playing more of a partner role rather than, hey, I'm the dietitian, I'm the voice of authority to tell you what to do. I think that's been really helpful and, and clients have been more receptive to hearing about this approach after we started out that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sometimes I think and I might be totally wrong, but I was trying to answer this question myself about what exactly is a non-diet dietitian? How do you describe that? And would you say that a lot of your work has to do with helping people heal their relationship with food more than anything else? I would say so. And, and even that concept of having a relationship with food can, can seem so foreign and out there and yeah. really kind of silly. I mean, if I had thought about it, you know, in my younger years, I would have thought, Psh, like you can't be, have a relationship with food. Like, what does that even mean? But I think it's just broadening our definition of, of health too, and really encouraging our clients to stretch their imagination beyond what we've been taught to believe is quote unquote healthy. You know, I referenced diet culture earlier, which is sort of the collective, you know, system that we live in. And our society has a very strong bias towards a thin ideal beauty standard and the, the diets that we see and the fads and the trends, they really have one thing in common, which is that they want you to lose weight by any means necessary. So you can kind of fill in the blank with whatever the trendy diet of the day is, but you know, that's really feeding into that belief that weight loss is the ultimate solution that you know, once you're thin, you'll be happy that you'll be accepted. And it's really challenging those beliefs in a way that still supports someone in practicing, you know, body autonomy is very, very important. You know, feeling empowered around food choices and having the knowledge and confidence to go out there and, and just filling their toolkit with the things that can build that resilience towards what we've talked about, like, you know, weight stigma and fat phobia, you know, that temptation to go back to dieting, you know, just building that resiliency to move through triggering situations or tough challenges in a way that still honors their their body and their health in that moment. That's a very well put way of kind of summarizing this question that I've kind of presented to you. So I really appreciate you answering this and helping clarify what exactly non-diet means. I also wanted to ask you what is the health at every size approach for those who don't know? Yeah, good question. So I think that's one of the other myths 
around a non-diet approach or non-diet work is that it's sort of loosey-goosey, like we pull ideas out of thin air and run with them. But in reality, health at every size, like I mentioned, is, is a trademark brand. So there are five pillars or tenets of, of this approach, and you'll hear it called HAES or the acronym H-A-E-S health at every size. It was created by a group of, of fact, fat activists who were really battling against these larger systems. So it's a, an intersectional approach that, you know, brings in diverse and, you know, unique voices and perspectives and experiences to create a five-pillared approach and framework. So we, we always have that to lean on. It's sort of like the, the guardrails or the bumpers on a bowling lane, because within that there is a ton of flexibility and that's what makes it so adaptable and easy to modify for, for unique needs and preferences. But at the same time, we have this sort of umbrella structure that we exist within. And it's, it's really helpful because we have really clear lines in the sand of, of what is considered pays informed and what is not. So that's one of the biggest benefits is, is understanding that, yeah, there's certain things like, you know, having the goal for weight loss, like that's a huge red flag that, you know, this isn't haze informed or haze aligned. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I'm not going to ask you to list off all five pillars, but could you kind of summarize the foundations of health at every size? Yeah. So I, I definitely encourage you to check it out online because I know podcasting platforms are often short on time, but if you're interested in more, there are a lot of great resources and a lot of great writers out there who are covering this topic. But one of the things that I, I admit was tough for me to wrap my head around at the beginning, and I often got it confused, was confusing it with healthy at every size. And I mistakenly oh. thought at first that, oh, this means that, you know, you can be healthy at every, at every size, at any size. And it wasn't until much later that I had done a lot more, you know, learning and unlearning on my own that I, I realized, okay, it's not about being healthy at every size. It's about health at every size, which means that we support healthful behaviors regardless of the type or size or shape of body that you live in. So I can give a more concrete example of that, which is around life enhancing movement. That's one of the tenets that I personally really love because like I mentioned, I've, I was an athlete in the past and I still love to move my body in, in lots of different ways. But if we were going to apply that health at every size framework to something like movement and exercise or physical activity or, you know, fill in the blank with any term that isn't potentially triggering to you. And it's like saying, regardless of body shape or size, you have the choice in engaging in life enhancing movement. So under diet culture, that might look like you head to the gym and you hop on a cardio machine for X number of minutes, X number of times per week. Under this model, we're asking questions like, do you enjoy this type of movement? How do you feel in your body before, during, and after? Is it providing something that you want or need for your lifestyle? And if not, if the answer to those things is, is no, what can we do to find an alternative or present you with more options so that you feel empowered enough to make a choice? And this isn't based around the goal of weight loss. So it doesn't have to look like any traditional version of this that you've seen in the past. So mm -hmm. those, those approaches, I think, for dis distinguishing between healthy at every size and health at any size 
really centers around choice and body autonomy because ultimately at the end of the day, you know, I'm the expert of my body, but just because I'm a dietitian does not make me the expert in anyone else's body. So that always comes secondary or tertiary or far, far down the list from someone's actual lived experience. And it's putting them in the, that expert seat to say, I know my body, let's build trust around it. And what I know I need to do to, to reach whatever goal. The other interesting thing too, that, that I didn't know about this approach in the beginning was that it doesn't center a pursuit of health as a moral indication. You know, it doesn't say that, oh, you have to choose to be healthy no matter what at any size. You have to pursue health and well-being. It is perfectly acceptable to say, hey, this isn't a priority for me right now. This isn't one of my personal values or this isn't something that I can dedicate time and energy and resources to. And that is no better or no worse than the people who say that yes, actually it is a personal value and it is something that I want to pursue. So it, it levels the playing field in that sense as well. It's very empowering. I remember when I first heard of Hayes, I just was, I had a eureka moment. I was like, this is what we all need just because it really does provide a sense of empowerment and choice. And also it takes the pressure off a little bit of having to constantly pursue health, like you were saying, like you can almost own up to the fact that it isn't a priority in your life right now. And you don't have the time to devote to going to the gym or meal prepping or whatever it may be that you may have felt pressured to do in the past. Exactly. And, you know, I think too, in this year of, of 2020, when, <laughs> you know, a lot of the options that may have been available in the past, like even just going to a gym. I mean, those options are off the table. You know, people's budget are being affected. People's time, their energy, just their bandwidth for dealing with the pandemic has, has made it really, really tough. And again, I, I can't speak for anyone else, but I have to imagine that that freedom to say, Hey, I'm doing the best I can with what I've got right now. If this doesn't mean that I lose weight in the process or that, you know, my lifestyle looks different than it used to be that, you know, my body is changing and I, I can accept that for what it is or what I need it to be right now. I think that is, is one of the things that again, makes me want to dig my heels in even more and, and advocate for this approach because we've seen how harmful it can be when we put that pressure on people to say, Hey, I know you got a lot going on, but this is really important and you should be doing it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think the Hayes approach acknowledges mental health, which I personally love. And one piece of that that has stuck with me for a while is the concept that was made clear when I read the Help in Every Size book is that chronic dieting can have more of a mental like impact in a negative way and have more health consequences than like even if you are living in a thin body you can still have more health consequences because of like the mental torment that and physical torment that you're putting yourself through whereas if you were to allow more of a flow into your life and adopt the haze approach you are mentally happier you have more joy in your life and you become a more comprehensive a, a healthier person overall i would agree yeah again i can only speak for myself but i know that 
my level of anxiety around food really went up around the time that I was struggling with, with my own troubles, but then also drastically went down when I loosened up around those food rules. So even something as simple as, you know, again, (laughs) we can't do this right now, but going to a restaurant, you know, when I was engrossed in these disordered thoughts and behaviors around food, it was a really challenging thing to, let's say, go to a restaurant that didn't post their menu online. You know, I, I was taking time to look it up ahead of time, try to estimate or guess the nutrition in certain dishes or like plan my order ahead of time instead of asking the questions that really mattered, which was like, how hungry do I feel right now? What do I think would be enjoyable? What do I think would be satisfying? Is this something that I want to eat? And I think even just that reframing around, you know, how do I want to spend my time and energy can Mm again, be really empowering and offer more choice and more options. And the flip side of that too, that, that goes right along with it is non-judgment around whatever that choice ultimately is. So in the past, again, I was dealing with a lot of shame around food choices, a lot of guilt or trying to compensate through exercise or other really harmful behaviors. And again, when you remove that judgment or you can view it with more neutrality, then all of a sudden I felt a lot of that dissipate as well. And that, that was a really good feeling. Absolutely. I think removing the judgment of food can transform the way you feel around food and the way you feel after eating food and the way you approach ordering at a restaurant. I mean, I feel like it's like we all have had those moments where those food rules have dominated our minds as opposed to us just asking ourselves, how do I feel right now? What would I want? You know, what would I enjoy? And I think it's really helpful that people can lean back on a new ideology to, to move forward. Yeah, I think that's the, the toughest part of it at times too, is recognizing that you're taking pretty much everything you've ever learned or heard <laughs> or been exposed to and saying, wait a second, this is pretty much the exact opposite. You know, if you've always, you know, eaten by food rules or had this outside source dictating what you can and can't do, if you've always stuck to a meal plan and had these rigid rules around what's allowable and what's not, then it can feel terrifying to like open the gates and just say, Hey, here's a free for all. What do you feel like having? And I think again, like that's one of the the things that I really focused on with clients was saying, you know, I, I understand that this feels scary. Let's talk about it. What are your fears around this? Or what do you fear may happen if you go all in? And if someone was willing to tackle that, it's like, okay, Hey, I'm right here with you. But if someone's not, it's like, okay, this is, think of this as a menu of options. What do you want to start with? And we don't have to just fling you off the cliff and tell you to learn to fly on your way down. Mm -hmm. It's really more about, you know, these gradual changes and introducing these, these small things and, and building up that muscle, so to speak of, of that resiliency that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I always do feel like every small change you can make does build up a little recovery muscle, you know, like if you can break one food rule one time, it helps strengthen that muscle. And with repetition, it just can get to the point where it was no longer a fear. 
Yeah. I think about that really, really clearly with one of my like, you know, hangups around food was, was fast food and, you know, going to a fast food <laughs> drive through ordering food, eating it alone in my car or where no one else would see me. And that was like one of the things that I really had to push through and it, it took a while, but then there were other things that came more easily, like saying, okay, I'm going to eat at a different time of day based on my hunger, not when it's a meal time. So I think, you know, offering that reminder that this process looks different and certain things can evolve at different paces. You know, some of this might feel pretty, pretty neutral from the beginning, or the, there may be food rules that you can let go of more easily. And then there's others that just linger and linger, or you feel like you're regressing or reverting back to something. And that doesn't mean that you're failing or doing it wrong. It just indicates like, Hey, this is another opportunity to learn, to get curious and to really ask those questions. Like, you know, why am I still doing it? I'm, I'm getting something out of it. Let's find out what that is. And if that can be replaced with you know, something else. I think too, a lot about hunger and fullness and satisfaction and being so afraid of, of overeating. So, you know, feeling like there was binge eating coming on or that there was potential to just eat way, way past the point of physical fullness and trying to approach that with neutrality. And even just saying like, okay, I sense how my body feels right now. I understand it better. And now I know what it really feels like to be a nine or a 10 on the fullness scale. So now next time I can take that sort of build that body wisdom and say, okay, do I want to experience that again? Yes or no. And now that I understand the consequences, you know, is that something I choose to do? And again, with non-judgment wrapped in all of this, it's like, Hey, if that is the choice that I make in the moment, no harm, no foul. Like tomorrow's a new day. My body still deserves to be nourished and cared for. Even if that does happen. Absolutely. I think that the hunger and fullness scale is a tool that can be so useful in learning. You know, I have a lot of clients who are afraid of overeating. They're really afraid of giving an, letting go of an ounce of control because if they do, they're going to kind of revert into survival mode and kind of experience a binge. So I love how you just noted the importance of a non-judgment there like even if you do end up experiencing a binge you might as well not judge yourself for that moment you can say with compassion you know I am learning and healing my relationship with food and you know now that I know what that feels like and that discomfort that I probably didn't like I can relearn you know use my body wisdom to learn you know what it feels like to be full and satisfied I know from my experience, that's exactly what happened. It was like, I, I actually did binge a few times because I had, um, I had bulimia. So for me, it was like, I, I would have these mini binges and then I would feel sick and whatever. And I had to learn by getting in touch with my body wisdom that the more I fed myself, the less likely I was to binge. So it's, it's definitely a learning process. That. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think visuals, at least for me, I, I'm kind of a combination learner where having those things simultaneously helps new information really sink in. And I'm also, I think, just kind of wired that way. I'm like, okay, show me the data, show me the proof. 
So visuals like that, you know, are, are helpful. And for me, especially around that kind of chaotic, out of control feeling that may result from a, a binge or, you know, just feeling like, oh, I'm so out of control. Like I can't get a handle on this. I can't get it back under control was to think of a pendulum. And with restriction, that's what I was noticing was, you know, coming ahead of that trigger or that, that temptation to really, you know, dig into what I wasn't letting myself have. And so I was picturing like a pendulum. And if you pull it all the way to one side, and this is the restrictive phase where, you know, you're, you're following the food rules, you're doing everything right. You feel that perfectionism and you feel like you're doing it really, really well. You can only maintain that for so long. And so no matter how far you've pulled that, you know, pendulum to one side, it's only a matter of time before the tension breaks and that pendulum swings just as far to the other end of the spectrum, which a lot of times does look like binge eating or that out of control feeling and sitting with that discomfort and being okay with feeling that physically, mentally, and emotionally uncomfortable is kind of what has to happen for you to not go right back into that cycle where you pull your pendulum right back over to the other side eventually. And again, this is so much easier said than done. It is massively uncomfortable to do this in the moment, but in time with some trust and some patience in the process and just belief that you, you can move through that is that your pendulum sort of settles in the middle. You know, there might be days or certain meals where you still eat past physical fullness, but you no longer are returning to that same level of restriction and deprivation that set off that wild swinging in the first place. I absolutely love that comparison, that visual of the pendulum, because it's so true. You're just swinging from one extreme to the next. And in order to kind of save yourself from that awful cycle, you need to commit to being well fed most of you know when you can be and and feed yourself regularly and not skip those meals or severely restrict or binge and then feel like you need to compensate for it Um, so I really loved that pendulum comparison so thank you for sharing that yeah I think too you know just like you said that that regular nourishment and energy that you get from from going you know, not necessarily, I guess, all in, <laughs> I don't know if that's <laughs> the way to describe it, but you know, that reminder was helpful for me that, okay, I, I still deserve to eat. My body still needs me to take care of it. Even after quote unquote overeating or feeling out of control. And, and I think with that too, it's just, you know, something that happens with time, you know, we didn't, fall into these disordered behaviors or these harmful beliefs around wellness or nutrition overnight. So it takes a lot of time and a lot of really conscious effort to break ourselves of these things that we've, you know, just grown to believe because of what diet culture has drilled into us. (laughs) Yeah. I think with the, the pendulum example, it's like you, that moment where, okay, you're swinging back and forth on the pendulum. And that moment you say, okay, instead of restricting today, I'm just going to eat breakfast first and see how that goes, you know, instead of trying to restrict all day, that's a really uncomfortable moment, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, there's all these urges to restrict, but taking that step to respecting your body and respecting the process of healing your relationship with food. It's like having that 
meal is one step in the right direction when it comes to finding that middle zone of the pendulum. And then when I think of this pendulum, <laughs> I love this concept, Kara. Um, when you think of the pendulum, when you are kind of in the middle and you've stopped those huge swings, then it really becomes intuitive. You know, like you're not really swinging, but you're saying, okay, I've, I've had maybe a lot more fast food or convenient quick foods that aren't necessarily fresh or what I would prefer this week because I've been on vacation. And now my body is naturally craving those healthy or fresh veggies and greens and things like that. And it becomes more of a, a balanced middle ground, which I love. Yeah. And I think too about, you know, when you're in that middle zone and yeah, you, you've got some fluctuations, but you're, you're not swinging to these, these far extremes anymore. I think that's what builds that resiliency and it really shields you against what diet culture is trying to sell you because let's think about it. I mean, you're maybe the most vulnerable to new diets or, you know, these stories that sound too good to be true. And you're just, you're grasping for anything that promises a way out of this discomfort that you're feeling. And that's my, one of my biggest bones to pick with diet culture is the way that it does prey upon that vulnerability. It knows that weakness inside of us and it knows exactly what we want to hear to feel like, okay, this time it'll work for me. So when we feel those temptations to go back to dieting, again, that's why I distinguish between being non-diet or anti-diet, not anti-dieter. My issue is the way that this you know, huge industry that profits off of our discomfort and shame and guilt around eating. My issue is with how that continues the process for so many people and keeps them trapped in that, you know, mm. pendulum swinging back and forth from one extreme to the other. Yeah. Diet culture really can keep you stuck. So it's so helpful that there are voices out there like your own um, to really disrupt that train of thought and offer a new way of living and relating to food and, and feeding yourself and, and moving, you know, I, I just am so appreciative of the work that you do and other non-diet dietitians and Hayes practitioners out there. Cause whenever I have a client who comes to me in need of like a dietitian, I'll always say you need to find like a non-diet, haze-informed dietitian, because we need to take the judgment out of food. We need to take the shame and guilt out of food that you've had for all these years. And, and it's just so valuable to have your the knowledge that everyone in your field brings to the eating disorder world. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that. And, and of course, I, I can't take any other credit because like I said, my, my learning has been informed by the work of so many others that came before. And because I, I don't have that lived experience of being in a large or fat body, I'm, I'm basing my work off of what I've learned through them and also really guided by, by clients. So I think for, you know, for me, it was so helpful to see where those intersections were coming, you know, how, how diet culture and our preference for certain body shapes is really structured by racism. I mean, that's a huge thing within those beauty standards of our preference for certain body types. 
you know, how, how food culture has been very whitewashed to exclude things that, you know, would be totally normal in other cultures. And yet from our viewpoint here, they either aren't allowed, they aren't healthy enough, they aren't nutritious enough. And just really, you know, digging into that as well to recognize like, okay, this isn't just about body size or food or, you know, culture. It's all of it. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's really got to be tackled from all angles because it's so prevalent and it's so systemic at this point. Yeah, it really is. I, and I just want to offer this notion to those listening who may not be totally immersed in the non-diet world or the health at every size world or um, the fat activist world, but dieting and diet culture is really a social issue and it is rooted in racism and sizeism and like oh, so many ter- terrible so many things others. that I'm sure, yeah. these, I'm sure you do not want to be associated with, you know? So I don't know if you have anything to add to my comment, but I think it's so important that people educate themselves on the roots of dieting as well. Yeah, I think, you know, it's like the misconception that eating disorders are a food issue and, and it's not, it's so, so much more than that. And, you know, recognizing it for what it is, is one of the first things that needs to happen to face it head on. And I think, you know, maybe one parallel that could be drawn is, is just like you said, you know, dieting and this, this weight centric or weight normative culture that we live in isn't a health and, and wellness problem. It really is the culmination of these social structures that we've lived with and have essentially built to, to benefit whiteness. I mean, there's a reason why there's a hierarchy in our mind of certain body types that are deemed preferable or healthy or worthy. And like, that's super messed up. And I think it's, it's really hard to address that because you know, it's, it's so normalized that going against that really puts you at odds with what so many other people are doing. And that in and of itself can be really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The empowering thought to have is that I'm going to take it to a different level, I think, but if you can heal your eating disorder and you can heal your relationship with food and let go of dieting, you are part of the progress of like where the world needs to be as far as acknowledging how systematically problematic diet culture is. So I hope that motivates those who are listening to to really look into changing. You know, we have to examine our motivations and, and sometimes some people who I work with their sense of feminism is what pulls them towards recovery or social activism helps pull them toward recovery. So think about what you value and how you want to contribute to the world and recognize that when you let go of your eating disorder, you're also supporting a much better ideal of like where the world can be. Oh yes. And that's so, so powerful to think about. I mean, I'm, I'm not a parent myself, so I, I can't relate to this, but I've had clients who shared that, you know, they grew up experiencing their, their mother's attempts at dieting or their whole family was enrolled at Weight Watchers. And that's like a thing they did. They went all into meetings together and <laughs> mm-hmm. they, they recognize the trickle down effects of that. And they say, you know, I want to break the cycle because I don't want my daughter to grow up experiencing that or 
you know, like you said, just thinking about what it is that you value and how you really want to move through the world. I think it's a, a more authentic way to live and a really liberating way to live because when your mind is not preoccupied and fixated on, you know, counting every gram or entering everything into an app on your phone. I mean, you're, you're just so much more engaged and, and able to focus on other issues that are important to you and can make a huge difference. So it's, I don't know if that's, you know, motivating to anybody else, but at least for me, it was kind of a, a vision of how I could like step outside of myself. And, you know, selfishly, it was one of the ways to feel more significant because I, I truly believe that is one of the intrinsic human needs that a lot of us have is, is wanting to feel like we're part of something bigger than just us as an individual with like our little minuscule problems in the larger world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. I think that you are so right in saying that. And it is nice to look at the big picture and it's really useful to do so when it comes to breaking free from diet culture. Yeah. And I think diet culture is sort of this, you know, abstract, (laughs) hard to define thing, kind of like even just before when we were trying to describe or define a non-diet dietitian. But for anyone listening, like, I just kind of encourage you to start looking for it. And I think, you know, you, you may be surprised, like the weird little places that it shows up and it's just so like woven into the fabric of what we hear, what we see, what we're taught that, yeah, it's, it's almost like mixing paint colors, right? Like yeah. when you have yellow and blue paint, they kind of exist separately and you're not really aware of anything in between, but then you mix them and you get green and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't unmix it. Once you see diet culture, you're like, I can't unsee it. Like it's there and it's blatant and it is harmful. Like we got to do something about it. Yes. Actually, one thing I've done, and I'll encourage people to do this and it's fascinating and eye-opening is to track on your phone the instances of fat phobia you witness either in the world or toward yourself if you're living in a larger body. It's like track those things for, well, if you're living in a larger body, it's probably much more obvious to you the fat phobia in the world. So this might actually more apply to those living in a thinner body is track those instances where you hear a fat joke or you see people posing with trying to get the skinny arm in photos or telling you that black is the slimming color to wear like just take a week to like track those things and you will be mind blown how quickly that list explodes in your notes it's like (laughs) and that'll help you recognize how we are literally living in this world where we're so immersed in that mentality. Yes, I, I agree. And yeah, at the same time, I think seeing those alternatives. So another thing that I often recommend is going through, especially on social media, just the people that you're following and frequently engaging with and kind of just doing a quick audit, like seeing how diverse are the body shapes and sizes that I'm seeing? Is it truly inclusive of bodies of different colors, different abilities, different ages, different, you know, gender identities and all the rest? And I think turning to those stories and and really hearing and believing and trusting that those things happen and are real. Again, I, I live with a ton of thin privilege. So for me, it's not my role to say whether fat phobia does or doesn't exist. It's my role to, to listen and believe and know when to come out of that conversation because 
those are the voices that we really should be listening to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Kara, it has been an absolute joy to have you on the show. I know that everyone listening probably learned a bunch from you today and you are really such a light in the non-diet space and even in the recovery space. I'm sure that those listening are so appreciative of everything you've brought to into their life today. So thank you so much for joining me. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I knew we would end up with a great conversation and this did not disappoint. I'm so glad we got to do it. Oh, that's so good. I feel the same exact way. And before I let you go, is there anywhere specific that people listening can find you online? Of course. Yes. So I mentioned social media because I probably spend an unreasonable amount of time there, but on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all the rest, I am at streetsmartrd. And then my website is just my, my brand name. So streetsmartnutrition.com. And I've actually got uh, an intuitive eating workbook out there for anyone who's interested in digging in and, and really getting to the nitty gritty fun stuff, if you will. That is amazing. Yes, you are just literally a powerhouse. Sometimes I see, I follow you on pretty much every platform. I'm like, how does she do it? It's so impressive. (laughs) Well, I will tell you one of the secrets is that I currently live alone. (laughs) It's amazing how much time you gain when you, you know, like I said, I, I don't have kids. I have a partner, but we don't live together. And you can actually get quite a bit done when all you have to worry about is is your own self and your own space. So that is a, a privilege and a luxury that I'm, I'm fortunate to have right now. And that's part of the reason why I feel like I can do as much as I do. Well, that's good to know. So those of you who want to uh, build a social media platform, the secret, just go, go live by yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, Kara, I, I really, again, couldn't thank you enough. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful evening. Thank you. You too.